Blog Talk Radio. Talk Radio, and I'm Marcia Joyner, host of Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit and our producer, Marty Oakley. They afford us the opportunity to talk about uncomfortable topics and topics that many do not want you to know about. Why? Because if you knew the facts and not the fiction you were being told about this so-called compassionate care at hospice, You would look for alternatives, and certainly you would be looking for red flags, which we will talk about later tonight. The fact is that hospice services were started by Dame Cicely Saunders in 1967 and were meant to be compassionate and helpful in the dying process at the end of someone's life. They were meant to minimize pain for the actively dying not to drug a person into unconsciousness where they cannot think, eat, or drink, and ultimately hasten their death with toxic drugs, starvation, and dehydration. A horrible way to have the last chapter of your life executed. And again, let me say, it was for the actively dying. No one can predict that a person is going to die within six months unless... They hasten the process, and then they can narrow it down to mere days. It was intended for people who had diseases that could not be cured with medication or with treatment. However, for the past two decades, hospice has tumbled down a cliff enrolling people who can be treated, who are not terminal or actively dying. And today, someone has something as simple as trouble getting dressed or feeding themselves, or they're incontinent, they can qualify for that six-month criteria. This ought to scare every one of us. But wait, there is more that will qualify you for hospice. If you go to the hospital three or more times in a year with an issue such as breathing or blood pressure or a broken bone, you may, too, become eligible. Those visits get tallied up against you, and you may find yourself in the hospital and someone from hospice comes in to see you and talk to you about how they can help. How did they know you were there? Why did they just appear? Here's the deal. The hospital is penalized when a patient comes to the ER more than three times in a year and is known as a frequent flyer. So they notify the nearby hospice facility that there is a potential for them to pick up a new customer. And guess what? Hospice is more than willing to come and get you because they get credit and they get money for every person they enroll. In fact, there is a quota system 
I wasn't aware of the quota system and many other details about hospice until I read a book titled Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice by Michelle Young Dewars. And I was shocked that my knowledge about what hospice does was only the tip of the iceberg. I encourage the listeners to check this book out for yourself, and your eyes will be opened much wider than I'm able to do. The real compassion, or lack thereof, is made apparent in this firsthand knowledge by a hospice respiratory therapist. And as many of you may be aware of a urinary tract infection, that can alter the mental status, especially in the elderly. It can cause confusion, lack of appetite, weight loss, irritability, fatigue, decreased mobility, restlessness, and hallucinations, which could be the cause of some of the conditions I mentioned above, like falling or being incontinent or having difficulty dressing or eating. And is that a reason to consider hospice? I don't think so. Yet often I hear of patients who had UTIs that go untreated in hospitals, nursing homes, and hospices. Hospice is clear that once you enroll, they will not treat anything. And you're not supposed to go to the hospital again either. A UTI can very well cause a person to die if untreated. Hospice staff are great at manipulation and telling you whatever you want to hear to get you to enroll. They can offer home health care. They can come to your house instead of you going to the doctor or the hospital. They can bring meals. They can provide sitter services. And they can do light housekeeping. And it's all free. But is it? No. Medicare and Medicaid pay for this financially, But there is an annual aggregate cap, and in 2020, that is $29,964.78 per patient. And what that means is one person might come in hospice and live for a week, somebody two months, six months, ten months, or longer. The facility will receive a maximum of that almost $30,000 for each patient multiplied by the number of patients annually. And it doesn't matter if they're profit or nonprofit. I have no doubt that the bean counters are keeping close track of these numbers, which enables them to know when it will be time for someone to die. Case in point, Bradley Harris, CEO of Novus Hospice in Frisco, Texas, boldly texted nurses to find someone to go bye-bye. Or he complained a patient was living too long, causing that patient to die that day or the next. It is happening, and most people have no clue. Ultimately, he was arrested, but for Medicare, Medicaid fraud, not for the murders. The patient will pay the ultimate price with their life, leaving behind you, the devastated family. During the times that they're putting your loved one into a coma against your knowledge or your consent, the time that you would have to say your goodbyes if they were actually dying of a disease, the time that they would say, I love you, or that your mom would say how proud she is of you, or your dad say, you'll always be my baby girl. All of these times are stolen from the patient and the family. That person could live weeks, months, or years longer. There have been cases 
where people escaped hospice and lived three years longer. Shocking, right? But it's true. Let me say at this point, you have the right to refuse to enroll into hospice, and you always have a right to revoke hospice at any time you have reservations about their service. Trust your instincts. If something seems off to you, take action. Do not listen to their repeated lies and deception. We are here to offer help, as our guest tonight will share with you. So once they're enrolled, hospice staff may say that the patient will be continued treated for their disease or illness. Of course, they'll receive physical therapy if you're asking for it. Of course, we won't hasten their death if you happen to ask that question. Don't believe these promises. Our guests have seen the total opposite. Many family members state that the regular medication and vitamins were stopped immediately. Why would they do that? Because the intent of hospice is not to prolong prolong your loved one's life. They may say your loved one is in pain and we need to give them just a little something to ease the pain. It's just a whisper of morphine. It doesn't matter that they're not in pain. They will convince the family that they are or they'll say they're having a hard time breathing. And morphine, or they call it roxanol, so maybe you don't recognize the name, will help them breathe. But in most cases, they don't even tell you that they're administering a drug at the facility. And if you have home hospice, they leave a comfort kit with you that has everything you'll need, and they instruct you to give it to your loved one. You have absolutely no clue what these drugs are going to do to your loved one, and they certainly aren't going to tell you. I've talked to many of my guests and other people that have had a very difficult time grasping with this because they feel the guilt, because they feel like I killed my loved one. They didn't know. There's no way for you to know. Hospice is great at manipulation. They may also say your loved one is anxious. And this medicine, the term should be anti-anxiety or anti-psychotic drug, will help them from being anxious. Why do you think they're anxious? Because the drugs that they've already started giving them are making them anxious. And they may be, the patient may already suspect something and realize something is wrong. And this is even if they tell you they're giving them anything. It's part of the plan, and you and the patient are supposed to be part of the plan. But my experience and most of the victims I've spoken with were never included in the plan or told anything. Hospice goes about their one-size-fits-all, and they begin the euthanasia process. So Once the drugs have started, the patient may become combative and experiencing side effects from the drugs, which gives the hospice staff further opportunity to give them more drugs. What side effects, you may ask? Personally, in the summer of 2017, when my mom was tricked and taken to the death wing of hospice, I had only heard of morphine. They were giving her Ativan, morphine, and fentanyl. I was unaware I'd never heard of Ativan or fentanyl. We didn't know that 
they were giving her that, until a couple of days, the day she was supposed to be coming home, and she became non-responsive. Our ignorance cost her her life. The most common drugs used to euthanize our loved ones are morphine. Another name is Roxanol. Ativan, another name is Lorazepam. Haldol, Seroquel, and Fentanyl. There are others, but these are the most common. Again, as I said, hospice uses a one-size-fits-all whether or not the patient has any pain or is anxious. In fact, many nurses think it's funny to refer to giving a patient a ham sandwich, which contains Haldol, Ativan, and morphine. What is wrong with someone that could joke about that? All of these drugs share several side effects, such as depressed breathing, drowsiness, mood changes, confusion, stomach pain, and the list goes on. There are warnings not to give it to the elderly as the side effects may be worse and may cause coma or death. But that doesn't matter because they're in hospice, and it's okay to give them them toxic drugs because their life is going to be short-lived now. Additionally, several of these have warnings about combining them with other drugs, as you shouldn't mix morphine and Ativan, or you shouldn't mix Seroquel and Ativan. But hospice doesn't care, because they already know what their intent is, euthanasia, stealth euthanasia. So they give our loved ones drugs that make them sleep, cause issues with breathing, alter their mood, cause anxiety, cause hallucinations, constipation, urine issues. They add more drugs because they can convince the family the patient is in pain or anxious, and it's because of their toxic drugs. And now they are dying. The patient is now not conscious. They can't eat, they can't drink, and they die a slow, painful death from the drugs, starvation, and dehydration. If these same drugs in the combination and the duration were given to a young, strong, healthy person, that person would die also, but not from any disease. So how is it not premeditated murder? It is. Not all hospices are bad. There are some pro-life, some that treat patients with dignity, and they don't hasten their death, but we're not aware of many of them. As I stated, I witnessed my mother's murder in hospice in Georgia in the summer of 2017, and I could not live with myself if I did not warn others. I can't save her now, but maybe I can save your mom or dad or spouse. This is happening across the country. People need to wake up and protect themselves and their loved ones before you experience what so many of us have. You can never unsee what we saw. Today, there is a new way to call our elderly under the radar. That's COVID. I'm relatively certain that if toxicology reports were conducted for those that died in nursing homes, that they would have some of these same drugs in their system. But people listen to what they're being told, and they don't question. But you should. The fact is, the government is saving money from not having to treat the elderly. Euthanasia drugs are cheap. 
and there are obviously thousands of people willing to murder patients under the guise of hospice care, either out of ignorance, some misguided belief of doing them a favor, or pure evil. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen states, The refusal to take sides on great moral issues is in itself a decision. It is a silent acquiescence to evil. The tragedy of our time is that those who still believe in honesty lack fire and conviction, while those who believe in dishonesty are full of passionate conviction. Which will you choose to be? Tonight, my guest is Ann O'Meara, who lost her dad in 1992 and then her mom in 2016 under the guise of compassionate care with hospice. She will share some of the story with us tonight, which will provide insight into why today she is the executive director at Healthcare Advocacy and Leadership Organization, better known as Halo Voice. She has become a fierce warrior fighting the battle against hospice and any medical facility that would harm the elderly and disabled. Additionally, two times a week, she serves as a sidewalk counselor outside an abortion clinic, supporting the sanctity of all life and providing education to those willing to listen. I'll let her tell you about the mission of HALO and what they're doing to educate the public and how you can help with this wonderful mission of warning others. So with that, I'd like to welcome Anne O'Meara to Betrayed by Hospice talk show. And Anne, can you tell us about your parents and how you became an advocate and then to become the executive director of HALO? Sure. Well, good evening, Marcia. It's great to join your show tonight. So in terms of what brought me to HALO, it was really a combination of factors. My dad, as you said, had died back in 1992. Mom passed away in 2016. And I was greatly impacted by how they died. And their deaths were the main reason I joined HALO. But also in the months before I joined HALO, I had accepted a new job with a for-profit company. I was working really long hours. I never saw my family. And I was feeling really downhearted, and I had started praying that if God wanted me to do something more meaningful with my life, doors would open. And I have to say, doors definitely started opening. As you said, um, I'm a sidewalk counselor at an abortion clinic, and one Saturday morning, another sidewalk counselor that I knew told me about Halo and said that they had an opening she was wondering if I might be interested, and I said, well, sure, maybe. And then the next day after church, I received a call from a, another parishioner who is also a HALO board member, and she asked me if I would be interested in taking the position with HALO. And I have to say, it just really felt like God was speaking directly to me. It just felt like this was a job he had handpicked for me. And also, you know, I, I mentioned that my dad had died back in 1992 on Father's Day weekend. He died from emphysema. And during the two years or so leading up to his death, dad had been hospitalized with pneumonia on a few different occasions. And the first two times, he was placed on a ventilator. The third time, he died before he could be placed on a ventilator. My mom and I were both in the room with my dad when he took his last breath, 
and his final moments to me appeared very peaceful. Nevertheless, I watched my mom struggle with feelings of guilt in the months and years after dad's death. She felt she had unintentionally allowed dad to be euthanized, that she had watched medical professionals give my dad doses of morphine, blindly trusting he was being given appropriate amounts of this powerful drug. And I have to be honest, I thought that questioning the amount of morphine given to dad was mom's way of dealing with his death. However, in the years after dad died, mom had spoken to me about euthanasia, and she said something that I never forgot. And she said, don't let what happened to your dad happen to me. End-of-life situations can be complicated. If I'm ever in an end-of-life situation like dad, make sure you err on the side of life. And if you're not certain what to do, speak to a priest. And my mom was a lifelong Catholic. So fast forward to 2016. My mom was 87. She had heart issues and dementia. And not understanding how challenging it can be to find a truly pro-life hospice, my siblings and I placed mom in a hospice recommended by a Catholic hospital. After a couple weeks in hospice, Mom was diagnosed with a bladder infection. The hospice refused to treat the infection as, quote, that's not what hospice is all about. And I have to say, my siblings and I were horrified. We removed mom from that hospice, and we moved her to a second hospice, which would treat a bladder infection. Shortly after she was admitted to the second hospice, my siblings and I observed that she seemed unresponsive, or almost in a stupor when we visited. We were concerned and we demanded to know what medications had been given to her. We found out that without telling us, the hospice staff had given her um, doses of morphine and Ativan to keep her comfortable, because that's what they told us. Upon placing mom in hospice, we had agreed that these drugs could be given to mom to alleviate pain. It's notable that my mom had not expressed to anyone that she was experiencing pain. As a result of our discussions with the staff, the hospice promised to notify us before making any medication changes. So a few weeks later, I was out of state on a business trip. I received a call that no one wants to receive, and I heard that my mom's death was imminent. I rushed home to be with her, and as I sat at her bedside, I observed the nurses administering pain medication, and my siblings and I questioned, you know, the amount she was receiving because, again, our our mom had not shown she was in pain at all. And the nurses responded that mom was receiving a really low dose of morphine to keep her comfortable. And upon hearing this, you know, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that we didn't ask about it again. And then hours later, my mom died as I was holding her hand. And afterwards, we discovered that that low dose was actually quite high. And in retrospect, if I had even done a simple Google search, I would have been alerted that mom was receiving a high dose. Instead, I blindly trusted what I was told. And now, like my mom, I too live with feelings of guilt. And even after being forewarned, I had somehow, you know, let this happen to my mom. So that was kind of a long-winded answer, but those are really the reasons that brought me to HALO. Right. I I totally get that. And just like you said, they manipulated you 
and they boldface lied to you about it. And you didn't know. You didn't know where to look. So now that you're with Halo, um, you've learned so much in that period of time, and your goal now is to help other people. So can you tell um, our audience what the mission of the Healthcare Advocacy and Leadership Organization, and we know it all, we just call it HALO, HALO Voice. So can you tell us their mission? Sure. So HALO is a group that provides a voice for the medically vulnerable. And in terms of our mission statement, we aim to promote, protect, and advocate for the rights of the medically vulnerable. And in terms of advocating for the rights of the medically vulnerable, we really do that through direct patient and family interactions, through community education and awareness programs, and also through promotion and development of concrete life-affirming healthcare alternatives. Okay, so you're letting people know what your options are, where you can go other than going there, and notifying them what red flags are. Um, one of the, and they have a ton of information, I'll tell you the group now, it's halovoice.org. And the questions that you should ask hospice so that you're not blindly, you know, like um, Ann said, she tried to find one that was pro-life. So on your website you have a list of questions before you even go to hospice, right? We do have, uh, we call it a fact sheet, and we have received so much um, positive feedback on that fact sheet that has been instrumental in really helping people select hospice care that really is life-affirming. So it's, it's been really helpful. Right. Um, and they have... Life-affirming is one of the other things that they talk about. So if you're in a position, I noticed lately I took my dad to a dermatologist, and it was a different dermatologist, and we went in, and one of the questions to that they ask you is, do you have a living will? And years ago when you heard about a living will, you thought, well, that's a good thing. That's not a good thing. So... On the HALO site, they show different examples of what is good and what is not. So can you go over a few of those and talk about the ones that we hear about? Sure, I would be happy to. So when it comes to advanced directives, there are several different options. And at first glance, um, advanced directives don't seem all that complicated, but consider their origin. Back in 1967, the euthanasia, the euthanasia Society of America introduced the first advanced directive called the Living Will as a step toward social and legal acceptance of euthanasia. Today, every state's advanced directive law permits euthanasia by omission, and that is the withholding or withdrawal of life-sustaining procedures including basic measures such as providing food and fluids by tube or intravenously when their omission will be the direct cause of death. Living wills are fatally flawed. A living will, which is sometimes called a directive to physicians, it's a legal document that instructs physicians to use 
or not to use certain treatments and or tube feeding in the event of an illness or injury. And it's really impossible to foresee what you may want or need in a future situation when you're unable to speak for yourself. A living will is it's based on guesswork, which is really dangerous. It's never, of course, wise to specify conditions under which you would rather be dead. Anything you write or say could lead to the premature and involuntary ending of your life. If you refuse treatment, you risk tying the hands of a physician whose skills could restore you to health. Also, it's surprisingly difficult to state treatment wishes understandably. You may think you're being really clear, but the terms used in advanced directives often have legal and medical meanings that are quite different from what many people think they mean. You may have also heard of an advanced directive called a POLST, P-O-L-S-T, and that stands for Physicians' Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, and POLST documents are used extensively throughout the U.S. I will also say that POLST has numerous names and acronyms, so another name that it's known by is COLST, C-O-L-S-T, which stands for Clinician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Typically, if someone has a pulse, it will be a neon pink or green or bright yellow form so that it's highly visible in a patient's chart. The pulse document reduces complicated medical decisions to a, a kind of a check-the-box format. And how it works is a facilitator will ask a patient questions and they'll check boxes indicating whether they do or do not want CPR or ventilator or maybe it's antibodies or IV fluids, tube feeding, et cetera. And then after filling out the pulse document, the facilitator presents it to a doctor or a nurse practitioner for a signature. Keep in mind that the pulse document can go into effect even when a patient is fully capable of making his or her own medical decisions and or, and or does not have a terminal condition. Furthermore, a pulse can override a patient's medical power of attorney. And keep in mind that every other type of advanced directive requires witnesses, yet many pulse forms do not. And evidence really reflects that this approach has more to do with cost saving than the protection of informed consent. And so at HALO, we feel that the wiser choice is a medical power of attorney document in which you appoint a trusted family member or friend to be your proxy, or sometimes you'll hear it referred to as an agent. Your proxy will make medical decisions for you in the moment of need if you're unable either temporarily or permanently to do so for yourself, your proxy will endeavor to honor your values and wishes while basing decisions on current medical information. And again, you cannot know the treatments that will be available tomorrow, let alone five or 10 years after signing a living will. So it's important that you discuss your wishes and principles with your proxy when you sign your MPA and periodically thereafter. Your perspective may change as your circumstances change. Also, a medical power of attorney is needed for anyone who is 18 years old or older 
any person can suddenly be incapacitated due to an illness or, or injury. So again, for anyone 18 or older, we recommend they have that medical power of attorney. I do want to also mention that the standard medical power of attorney document presents problems because it uses the same language as does a living will. So all of this may sound confusing, but I wanted to mention that on HALO's website, on our homepage, if you go to halovoice.org, on that page, you will actually have the ability to search by state to locate the, the advanced directive document that would be applicable or recommended for your state. So that is a wonderful resource that's available. And again, that website is www.halovoice.org. And there's one other item I wanted to mention, and I know on HALO's website, we also reference another advanced directive, and that is the Loving Will. And the Loving Will is created by American Lifely. And in situations where someone wants to identify a medical power of attorney, they want to appoint that agent or that proxy, but they don't have a trusted person that they want to name, and so therefore they're not sure what to do. And if that is the situation, we would recommend that they use the American Life League document because the American Life League document has two different parts and so that is definitely the, the option we would recommend. And Marsha, okay. did, that, did that answer the question? Yes, that did, that did. So on your website, if you have someone, a loved one or a friend or a family member, then you would use the one per state on HALO's site. And if you wanted to assign your proxy to an attorney or someone else who is not, a family, a friend, close friend, then you would use that form. And the POLST um, is a lot of times when you go into the hospital before you have surgery that they would ask you to sign this form. You don't have to sign that. You can refuse to sign it. And it, as Ann was saying, it's a bright color. What has happened, and I know in Texas they had a situation where they were taking these forms and putting them checking off. A nurse will come in and ask questions and they check it off and they sign for you. So the patient doesn't even have to sign it. So you need to be very clear if they come in and they have a Pulse or the Colst Diamond document for you to sign that you let them know, no, I have my own medical power of attorney and as long as I am competent, can make my own decisions, I would appreciate I will make my own decisions for me and in the event that I cannot, here's my document and have lots of copies of it, right? And make sure that you're, the person that you're assigning your proxy or is your agent loves you and doesn't want to harm you or is not going to profit from your death and as Ann said, you discuss that with them. This is what I want to do. And, you know, and the other thing, just kind of a side thought, if you don't want to be cremated or if you do want to be cremated, these are discussions that you need to have, and you don't have to wait until you're old to have them. But 
your loved ones need to know what your wishes are. You, you want to open caskets, you don't want one. You know, I'm not trying to be doom and gloom, but there are things that you need to discuss with the people who are going to be making decisions for you so that your wishes are carried out. This is your life, and everybody needs to write the last chapter and not have it written. The other thing with the living will is that the physician can make the decisions for you. And which brings me to the DNR and the dangers of having signed a DNR. As Anne says, if today something were to happen, you might have one reaction. Five years from now, you might have a different reaction. If you have signed a do not resuscitate, they, you, they don't have to do anything. They don't have to treat you. They don't have to bring you back. They don't have to give you oxygen. They don't have to do CPR. Signing a DNR is a very, very dangerous thing. It used to mean, or what we thought it meant, was I don't want to be put on an artificial breathing machine for the rest of my life. That's what it used to mean. That is not what a DNR means. If you stop breathing, they don't do CPR. They don't do the paddles on you. They do nothing. In my personal opinion, you don't want a DNR. You do not want to sign a pulse. You want to have a medical power of attorney. And HALO has made it very easy. And per state, they've you know worked with attorneys to get these documented, and they're pretty secure, you know, in saying what it is that you need to say to protect yourself and your loved ones. So, and Marcia, I, I completely agree with what you said. And when it comes to DNRs, HALO's recommendation would be be wary because they can be misinterpreted. Also, as you said, there is definitely a tendency to reduce other kinds of treatment and care when a patient has a DNR order. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, the other thing that you have on your site, which is um, a very good document for people to consider, is the organ donation. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. So on our website, we have a lot of great resources and a lot of great fact sheets. So also on our website, we have a lot of stories about um, organ donation and a lot of times, well, and, and actually, let me, let me back up a little bit. So it's, it's interesting because when I started at HALO, I was actually an organ donor on my driver's license. And when I started at HALO, I read different articles about organ donation, and I was concerned because it, it definitely seemed like HALO was not recommending organ, organ donation. And then what I have since learned since coming to HALO is if you think about certain situations, let's say that you are trans, um, a surgeon is transplanting a human heart, something I hadn't really thought through before is that when the surgeon is transplanting that heart, they have to take a live beating heart. Um, there can't be any time in between. And so, in a sense, the surgeon is making a decision to end someone's life so they can do that transplant. And that is just something that I really wasn't aware of and hadn't, hadn't thought through. And on our website, we have, um, as, as Marcia said, we have a lot of different materials on organ donation. 
and they have a form that you can get that is a that is organ donation refusal form just to, that states you do not when you keep it with your driver's license because today the uniform anatomical gift act is in effect what that means is if you do not specify that you don't want them to take your organs and you're in a motorcycle wreck or you know you fall down a flight of steps anything and they determine that you're brain dead, they can make the determination and they call a a group of people that say, you know, we're looking for organs for this, we're looking for organs for that. And if you have one of those organs, then they can make the decision for you. So by not having this refusal to be an organ donator, you are at risk. They can make the decision and the next thing you know, your family is being pressured, you're brain dead, you're not going to come back from it. Brain death is very time-consuming for your brain to recover. Dr. Paul Byrne, um, who had, who's been on the program before, talks a lot about brain death. It's going to take a long time for your brain to heal. So just because they say you're brain dead, then they can perform an apnea test, which is not the same thing as a sleep apnea, it's an apnea that takes the oxygen away from your brain for 10 minutes. When they do that, your brain swells. It is much easier for them to now convince the family, see, there are no brain waves. See, their brain is completely, they will never come back. Because you just swelled the brain. The brain, the, their test results now are going to be skewed because of an apnea test. And, and we had a show previously uh, talking about how much different body parts, they're, they're getting paid for this. It's organ harvesting. This is going on. So protect yourself. Halo Voice has made this very easy by putting forms out there, educating people, letting you know what dangers are out there so that you can be prepared. Euthanasia is not the only danger that exists now. So HALO started um, this year. Can you tell us about your helpline that I'm very, very pleased with? Can you talk about that? Sure, I would be happy to. So we introduced a helpline, which is 24-7, and we introduced it a few months ago. And the helpline number is 888-221-4256, and that number is listed on our website. And the helpline offers free and confidential information, support, and referrals for patients, family members, and caregivers who have concerns about the treatment and care a patient is receiving in any healthcare setting, either at home or in a facility. And some of the topics that our patient advocates respond to most often include questions such as, what type of advanced directive do you recommend? Or, should I have a do not resuscitate or DNR order on file? Or what can you tell me about ventilators and pulling the plug? And, and Marcia um, touched on a couple of these too. You know, what should I know about the drugs commonly used in hospice care? And so we help with a wide variety of issues. And also I myself am a patient advocate on the helpline. And what I have found on the helpline is that a lot of callers just really need someone to listen to them. They are in a tough situation with their loved one, 
And I've also found that being a patient advocate can be really rewarding. Um, even today, before before I joined the show, I was telling Marsha that I received a helpline call this afternoon from a woman whose husband had a stroke last week. Her husband is in the hospital, and um, the hospital has a medical futility policy, and what that means is with that futility policy, the hospital, as opposed to the family, makes the call as to when they can remove um, life-sustaining treatment. So, for example, they can remove someone from a ventilator. So this poor woman is in the hospital. They have young children. And the hospital has come in and has said that Friday is the decision day that they are planning on probably removing him from the ventilator on Friday. But when the hospital, when the doctors had this conversation with this woman, what they said to her, someone actually called her husband a vegetable and said that he really, she needed to look at it like he was not really a human being anymore and that she needed to let him go. She needed to be compassionate and think of others. And that whole conversation was so devastating to this woman. And so we talked through what the situation is, what medical tests have been done to date, and what the next steps are, and what the, what the timing deadlines are. And HALO has already reached out and identified some pro-life, a pro-life doctor as well as a pro-life attorney that we are working with to help her to prevent her husband from being taken off the ventilator on Friday. So it's a, it's a pretty tough situation, but at the end of the day, you feel so good that you're really helping someone in such a tough situation. And I shared with Marsha that at the end of the conversation today with the person who called me on the helpline, she said something to the effect of, you have no idea how much you helped me, and you have just given me the, the, the biggest personal hug, and thank you so much. And it just, it was so, so rewarding. I, I just, I, I can't even describe that. Um, so if you are possibly, if you are interested in being a volunteer patient advocate, I would love to hear from you. And again, our contact information is on the website. Um, but if you're interested, reach out to me and know that as part of our volunteer patient advocate program, we conduct training. We also have monthly conference calls, and we provide you with a lot of resources as well. And I also wanted to mention that even if you're not interested in volunteering for HALO, we would love it if you became a patient advocate um, so that you are equipped, if you have a loved one in an end-of-life situation like we've been describing, that you can be an advocate for your loved one. And again, with all of the resources on HALO's website, you can be equipped to be a patient advocate for your loved one. Absolutely. And that's something that they just have out there and offer that as support. Because with us, and, and we were talking about this earlier, Marty, Ann, and I, before we came live, none of us do this. It's, this is not a paycheck for any of us. This is about saving. It's a passion for us, and it's about saving someone's loved one. We've been through it. We've lost people 
under questionable circumstances. Y'all probably heard me. My mom was outright murdered, and I advocate for the elderly and the vulnerable because it's a passion. HALO is giving an opportunity for you to reach out and help others. And if you don't want to do that right now, but it gives you the opportunity to help yourself because they have the information out there. They have brochures. They have, like we talked about earlier, questions to ask a hospice. Um, Are organ donors truly dead before their organs are taken? Life-affirming principles for medical decision-making. They have questions out there, drugs that are commonly used that I talked about earlier today that give you the list of the drugs so that you don't have to go look all over the place like like I did. I didn't know the halo existed when I first started my journey, and I went out and Googled every single medication, and as people told me different medications that their loved ones had been given, I Googled that and then you know just put everything together. Halo has it out there for you. The information exists. You need to take advantage of that information. The um, helpline, uh-huh. I was just going to say there is one publication on our website that I wanted to mention, and it's called Making a Difference, a Guide for Defending the Medically Vulnerable. It really helps anyone navigate our complicated and sometimes perilous healthcare system. And we have received great feedback on making a difference. So if you have time to go out to the website, I encourage you to check it out. Okay. Making a difference. Uh, it's like the, one of the brochures, right? It is a 16-page magazine. Right, right. And, and you covers- can go to them, and for a nominal fee, they will send you the actual magazine. Uh, the document that she's talking about, or you can download it, either one. Um, and, and I wanted to say, because some people, you know, some people are visual and some people, you know, listen and, and get things. The phone number, 888-221, the word HALO, H-A-L-O, might be easier for some of you to remember. Um, if you're more of a numbers person, the last four digits are 4256. And they do provide the documentation for you to answer questions if people call in. And if you're uncomfortable because you don't think you can do that, then you could always tell someone, I can get back to you, and then you could ask someone if it's a question that's not included in their documentation. And they're always updating it. You know, for questions that they get, they update their documentation. So, And you're not working, you know, eight hours. It's whatever time that you can work. Maybe on a Saturday you can, you know, work for two hours on a Saturday. That's a good time for you because people are calling in from, you know, the different time zones. So maybe a time zone for you would work good, you know, two to four on a particular day that you could answer the calls. So they accept whatever help you're willing to offer. It it all helps in that case. So there was um, another situation that you had talked about um, with a child that y'all had helped on. You know, a few weeks ago, I received a helpline call from a grandmother who had called in about her 22-month-old grandchild whom they found face down in a swimming pool. 
They it was, a, again, a very tough situation. They were not sure how long she had been face down in the swimming pool. The grandparents did CPR and, you know, got her to the hospital. And then when she was in the hospital, you know, the first couple of days, she was breathing on her own. And then a couple of days later, she had an episode of brain swelling, and they put the child on a ventilator. And then the next morning, the hospital's tone completely changed, and they talked to the family and then had that conversation about you need to be compassionate, you need to think about others, you really need to let go, your grandchild is or your child is no longer here. And it was really, really tough on the family. But what the hospital insisted on doing, they wanted to do an apnea test on this, on this little girl. And with the apnea test, if you don't know how that works, they will actually take you off the ventilator for 10 minutes to see if you start breathing on your own. The problem is when they remove that ventilator from 10 minutes and if you don't start breathing, it can and it does cause brain damage. So we always tell all of our helpline callers, if they have a situation like that, resist and do everything you can to prevent the hospital from doing the apnea test. Right. And HALO was able to bring in um, some pro-life assistants and experts that were really helpful and beneficial in this situation. The hospital did not, they did not do the apnea test, and a a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago, the little girl was released from the hospital. She is on a ventilator. She is still in a coma. But each week, the family is seeing developments. And for example, right now on command, this little girl can move her feet and her toes. And she's also breathing above the ventilator more and more. And it, it just really feels like this little girl's brain is waking up. So we are all at HALO. We are praying so hard for this little girl and her family and praying for a full or partial recovery. But at this time, we're, we're very hopeful. Tell them what her name is. I, w- I won't give her last name, but her Not first her last name. name. Not her last name, but just her first name. Her first name is Faith. And I Faith. mentioned to Marcia that the grandparents have been so inspiring to me. The grandfather, I mean, both of them are just inspiring, and they are so faith-filled. It's just, it's been incredible because they are in such a horrific situation, and just to see how they've responded and how they've handled it, it's, it's been amazing. And also, when I talked to the grandmother for the initial call, the one thing I had said to her was, in a situation like this, the hospital does not, you know, want everyone knowing about it. They don't want a, a big ruckus, so to speak. And so this family, you know, they notified the media. They had news crews there. They had picketers out there with signs. And this little girl had several siblings. And the signs that they held were just heartbreaking. You know, I know one of the signs said, let my sister live. But this family was all over it, and they were not going to let anyone do anything to that child that they did not want done. And it was just incredible. And, again, just a faith-filled family and just so – it was just beautiful to work with them and so rewarding. that's wonderful. Yeah. And I love the fact that her name is Faith. 
because I, too. I think a lot of times you just have to have faith that it's going to work out, but you have to help that along. You you can't just let it work its way out, and they were very active in pursuing someone who would come in and help them. Now, how did they know about Halo? How, how had they heard about you? You know, another pro-life organization had given them our contact information and suggested that they call us. And before the grandmother called, the pro-life organization also reached out to me as well and had given me all the background information. So Mm -hmm. as soon as that grandmother called, we were ready to go because I I had all of the information. So it was really great to partner and connect like that with another pro-life organization, and we do that frequently at HALO. Right. And, And the thing is there are organizations out there that do help people in this situation and if you're in a hospice environment say that you signed your loved one up without realizing what was happening and as i said earlier you must trust your instincts they're in a situation you know something's going wrong they're giving them drugs you can't get them to stop or they say they will but they don't or you know they're not giving them oxygen life legal defense foundation is another group that will send in, let you know, attorneys that are available that are pro-life attorneys in various areas. And and that's another good thing to know is there are pro-life attorneys. There are pro-life doctors. Um, I think at one time I had talked about getting together a list of pro-life hospice facilities, but we there's one in San Antonio. There just aren't that many that will go out and tell you that, yes, we're pro-life and we absolutely do not hasten death. I mean, they'll say that they talk it, but they don't walk it. So they may, And you don't want to be recommending to someone to go to a facility that you say is pro-life if you don't know that it is. So that's why we've not been able to, you know, compile a list of pro-life facilities around the United States because there just aren't many of them. And, you know, unless you know that, you don't want to recommend it. And, Marsha, I was also going to say you mentioned Life Legal. So HALO also partners with Life Legal. And also the helpline call that I mentioned that I received this afternoon, as I am doing this interview, I am actually emailing and messaging with Life Legal because they are helping us out with the situation that I mentioned, the helpline call we received today. Excellent, excellent. And and that's people working together to save lives because all life matters. And that's, you know, what, what you believe, what, you're, what I believe, and, you know, what a lot of people believe. But it, when you're faced in a situation where your loved one is dying and you're watching them digress so quickly, you're in shock. And that's why we're doing these now so that you know who to call. You have an an organization, you have a place to go to, to look up the information, to look up the drugs, and to tell the doctors and the nurses, no, you're not going to give that to my loved one. They're not in pain. You say they're in pain, but they're not in pain. I just spoke to them. They were just eating, and then they, you know, like you said, that, you know, your mother was just, you know, drugged up, 
you know, after you left, the next thing you know, she's unconscious and, you know, they can't talk. And that's the way it was with my mom the day she was supposed to go home back to their house from respite care for my dad, not even her. And they were putting her into a coma because they had decided she had gone past her six months, she had been recertified, and she was going to start costing them money, dipping into a pot of another patient's money. And it's about that. It's the bean counters. And they're looking at the money. That's what it's about to them. Sad to say, but that is what it's about. So um, I wanted to offer the people or any of our listeners, if you do have a question that you would like to ask Anne, that you can select one on your phone and you will be put into a queue and Marty will bring you on live so that you can ask your question if you would like to do that. So we'll we'll know if um, that comes about. In the meantime, we'll just continue talking. So the um, drugs, I think one of the things is people don't understand what the drugs do to people. So can you talk some, I know I talked earlier about it, but is there anything that you would like to add to what I said about the drugs? The only thing I would say is if you have a loved one that is, you know, for example, going into hospice or a care facility, I would just encourage you to make sure you know what medicines your loved one is taking, what the doses are, you know, do some research, check out the information on HALO's website, maybe talk to a pharmacist, um, but just make sure, be wary, and just be on top of the drugs that your loved one is taking. And, and the reaction. Even when my, I'm sorry, what was that? And their reactions. If you start to see them, you know, pushing food away or sleeping all the time or slurring their language, you know, look for the reactions. That is absolutely true, and I so wish I had had Halo to reach out to when my mom went through this because everything that I have learned about hospice and the drugs and everything we've talked about this evening I feel like I saw, you know, personally with my own mom. Um, So just, you know, do your research and do everything you can to be informed so the things that we're talking about don't happen to your loved one. Exactly, exactly. And And Go ahead. I was just going to say since coming to HALO, something that took me a little by surprise is that the pro-death movement, has its tentacles in every aspect of healthcare, particularly in tainted hospice and palliative care programs, also in healthcare advanced directives that are slanted toward refusal of treatment, also in unethical um, rationing of medical resources, and also in denial of care based on degrading decisions about whose lives are not worth living. And a minute ago or a few minutes ago, I mentioned hospital futility policies where the hospital is making the call as to who lives and who dies. And I've just seen so many of these things up close in that I've just been taken by surprise. And as you mentioned earlier, Marsha, I'm very active when it comes to abortion. I'm a sidewalk counselor, but again, I just had no idea how far the pro-death movement has, has moved. 
Well, it's because those with consciences can't understand how people can look at this as no big deal. And as I said earlier, that there are thousands of people willing to commit euthanasia. And I don't know if it's because they're ignorant and they don't know that the drugs that they're giving them are killing them. You know, is that it? And if that's the case, they certainly shouldn't be in the job that they're in if they're given drugs and they don't know that this is killing them. Or do they think they're angels of mercy and, oh, this person's in pain and, you know, they're old and it's time for them to give it up and, you know, die? You know, do they feel that way, they're angels, or are they just pure evil? And for someone to be talking about, you know, if, the patient, if the patient bothers me or if they don't listen to what I say, I'm going to give them a ham sandwich. That is absolutely cruel and inhumane. And how someone can even think that and think it's funny is beyond my comprehension. And yet there's a group that's called um, Oh Hell, I'm a Hospice Nurse, a Facebook group, that they have memes on there all the time like that. They think that's funny. It's a joke. And uh, speaking of Facebook, before I forget, um, we have a group called Murdered by Hospice, and it is people sharing their stories and sharing other articles, and it is victims of stories, just like what you said about, you know, your mom and dad, and they come on here. It's a safe place to come to get to talk to other people, to vent, to offer suggestions, to offer support for other people. We do have questions. If you don't answer the questions, you don't get into the group. Um, And if you do get into the group and you disparage the members there, you will be removed promptly because it is a safe haven for people. And we don't, you know, we're not, they've already been disrupted enough and traumatized and we're not going to allow other people to do that to them. The um, drugs that I was talking about earlier and, and this is something, again, I didn't know anything about anything but morphine. When they said she was getting morphine, you know, my tentacles went up and all red flags, but I knew nothing about Ativan. They're called different things, which is why I discuss the names, different names are called. The fentanyl is 100 times stronger than morphine and 50 times stronger than heroin, and that's a drug that they gave to my mom in addition to morphine and in addition to the Ativan. There was no way my mother wasn't going to die with those drugs. It was murder. The Haldol is used for people that have schizophrenia or Tourette syndrome or bipolar disorder, and that's what they're given to the elderly. Our elderly don't have Tourette's. They're not bipolar, but they give them to sedate them so they don't have to be bothered with them. Seroquel is also treated for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, major depression. They're, they're, not that, they're not depressed until they get in there and you start killing them and they start to sense what's going on. And then, yes, they are anxious. I would be anxious. Um, at this point in my life, going to a hospital terrifies me. I don't want to go. I think I'll just stay here and die in my home if I have something happens to me because I'm terrified of going to a hospital because I've seen what they do. Um, the other thing you mentioned earlier is about food and water being used as medical treatment. That's not medical. That's sustaining life. 
So if a patient or someone in the nursing home has dementia, they don't know that they're hungry and they don't know that they should pick up a fork and eat something or they should drink something. So now, and I think this was like six months ago or maybe longer, they have decided if a person has dementia, they can just starve and dehydrate them to death. It's okay. And if they do have pain, then they'll give them morphine and they'll give them Ativan. But they are letting people with dementia die by not feeding and not giving them sustenance because they don't want to be bothered with it and they know the person's going to die because they're not eating. More importantly, they're not drinking anything. So how have we become a society that we can be that cruel to people from infancy through the elderly? And what constitutes being old? Where's the sweet spot? that we're going to let people live from what, you know, after they're born. So we're going to let them live from one year until 70. Is that the cutoff? Is it 65 when you start getting Social Security that they don't want you to get that, you know, Medicare, so that we'll save money on Medicare? You know, what's the sweet spot? And I don't know. That's, you know, a rhetorical question, I guess, because I don't know what it is. Well, and I think, too, with COVID, just seeing all, especially early on, seeing all the, the disturbing headlines that we saw concerning, you know, rationing of health care and weighing universal DNR orders, you know, it just felt like it was kind of an easy way to discriminate against the elderly or the medically vulnerable. So that was kind of eye-opening as well. Well, it was. And the thing that's so sad is there were – ships and tents and facilities, buildings that were set up specifically to house the COVID-positive patients, and yet decisions were made by many of the governors to send those people into their nursing homes, knowing that people with comorbidities and the elderly were at a higher risk and I think they did it purposefully. They knew this was going to happen. They just didn't expect there to be so much media outcry. And for the families of those people that were there for either rehabilitation or in the nursing home because that's where they lived, they didn't expect the families to be in, you know, rise up against them. They just figured, well, I mean, it's you know it's like hospice most people don't know that their loved ones are murdered because we've been taught that hospice is compassionate and you don't suspect them of doing something like that and you trust them they're compassionate they wouldn't hurt your loved one yes they would and the hippocratic oath out the window do no harm i don't know of any worse harm than murder and yet it happens every day and in uh, Canada, because I know that your group is also affiliated with um, Alex Shaddenberg with the um, Euthanasia Coalition against euthanasia. In Canada, euthanization is legal. In the United States, it's happening, but it's not legal yet. They have assisted suicide, which someone comes to a doctor and says, I don't want to live for whatever reason, they give them the medication, and they know when they take it 
that they are going to die. Our loved ones don't make any such commitment. They don't say they want to die. They don't consent. There is no signed consent. There is no knowledge what these drugs are going to do when they start giving it to them. So that's the difference between assisted suicide and euthanasia. And to me, it comes back to what I was saying. Go ahead. Oh, well, I just interject that on the assisted suicide part. You know, there's different states, including the state of Minnesota, where I live, where, you know, the Right to Die movement, they are working hard to get assisted suicide laws passed in more and more states. Right. And I think we're, the last I heard, we were at 11. It could be and higher I, than that. I was that. thinking it was 12, but it's right around okay. 11 or 10. Okay, it could be. Yes. But it's, they are, they're trying to get more and more people to accept assisted suicide, and the next thing will be to accept euthanasia. And so you don't make the decision, they make the decision for you. And it's, you know, in other countries, it's legal. Um, A young teenager had been raped as a child, and she was just so depressed, she didn't want to live anymore, and she went to the doctor and said, I don't want to live anymore, I hate my life. And he gave her drugs because, oh, well, she was miserable. Instead of getting to the bottom of the problem, instead of encouraging her, instead of locking up the people that were guilty of harming her, she committed suicide. And it was allowed. How sad that we just let this happen. And in the United States, it is coming. People are being conditioned to accept that it is okay to kill the elderly or the disabled. And certainly with, you know, and I know it's not a show on abortion, but in the state of Virginia there is a governor who says that if a baby is born after a botched abortion that the mother and the doctor will decide what to do with the child and in the meantime they'll keep it comfortable. What? This is a baby that's fought for its life and it's survived? And you're going to keep it comfortable giving it morphine or fentanyl? And then if you and the mother decide that, you know, we're not going to let the baby live, then you're just, how is this not murder? Why are we as a society are not outraged by this? I think they have really strong PR machines. They have strong what? Um, PR, public relations, just their messaging they can sometimes it feels like they can convince people of almost anything. You know, when you listen to the news cycle and you see how things are being reported, but it's the so lies you mean? Yeah, because it's a lie. Because it's a lie. So there was, um, and people say, you know, what can we do? I guess we should cover that. What what can we do other than um, join the group? And tell your stories. If you know you've lost a loved one, speak out about it. Tell other people. Contact Halo. Um, volunteer to take calls on you know certain day whenever it's convenient for you. They you know they'll give you the information so that you can do that. Um, there are other sites out there. The book that I mentioned, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice is an excellent book which gives a lot of stories. I had no clue 
of a lot of the things that was going on in hospice. Um, that's another great resource. And there was a bill that came out. Um, it's called the Palliative Care, Help, and Education Training Act that for the past three years they've been trying to push down everybody's throat. And from what I understand now that's not, you know, that's been kind of pushed aside for the time being. And what they said, it's to train people how to do hospice properly, education and training. What it is for is for the baby boomers because they're, they're going to need more places to put baby boomers because there aren't enough hospices out there. And hospice, even if they're profit or nonprofit, is making a huge amount of money on killing people. The book, Killing for Profit. And that is exactly what's happening to our loved ones. And most people don't know it. Most people accept they died in their sleep. Most people accept they got COVID and they died. Again, I believe if you did toxicology, you would find that they have the same drugs we talked about in their bloodstream. But they're not going to let you do that. They won't even let you see your loved one. You can't go into the morgue and see the person if they say that person died from COVID. So what if you want, if, if you believe in cremation and you want your loved one cremated? They're not going to let you come in unless they embalm them so that you can see them because you might get COVID. What if I wear PPE when my loved one is alive and I do the gloves and I get you to te- uh, test me before I come in and check my temperature, the same thing that you're doing to the people who work in the nursing homes. What if I let you do all that to me and then I come in to see my loved one? Can I do that? No. And people stand outside of the windows with signs talking to their loved ones who don't understand, and especially if they have dementia, they don't understand why their loved one isn't visiting them. The isolation is horrible for anybody, but more so for an elderly person. I think so, too, and I think just emotionally how tough that has to be on them. And, you know, as I think about the COVID situation, in one way I'm, I'm I'm almost grateful that my mom isn't alive to have to deal with that because her family was so important to her that I think she would have just fallen apart without that family reinforcement, just emotionally. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't think she could have could have dealt with it. And I think that's, you know, there's a group um, that says that, you know, isolation kills too, and that's true. And the um, Voices for Seniors, they have a group, and they are the members of that lost loved ones in a majority of them in New York City with the nursing home with COVID. And they've, they've got a group out there also. She, um, Vivian Reyes was on the show a couple of months ago and talking about how this has affected her and her sister, um, Alexis, by losing their mother, who was in for rehabilitation, not in the nursing home. She lived in her own place, but she went in for rehabilitation and never came out, and they didn't get to go see her. So, it, you know, the elderly just are being treated, as you said earlier, just like they're youth, useless. 
And it's, you know, back to the Holocaust where you consider somebody isn't giving to the community, they're no longer working, and they're just taking up resources. Well, you know what? They paid into that. The contract they made said, I will do this for this many years, and then you're going to give them Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare. And they made a contract, and now the government wants to renege on the contract because they're costing money. They put money in. It's not their fault that the money is being used for other things. They put money in. They have a right to live until it is their time and God's time for them to die, not some doctor, some nurse who decides we're going to save money and we're going to overdose you and kill you in such a cruel, inhumane way. Sorry, that to me is premeditated murder and it's condoned, they get away with it. When I think all of that was kind of brought home to me a few weeks back, Hilo has an office that is actually in a church, and across the street from us there is a large nursing home. And one day, one morning, I was getting out of my car to go go into the office, and a car pulled in with two elderly people, and they rolled down their window, and they wanted to know if, if there was mass going on at that time. And then they proceeded to tell me that in the nursing home, they were only allowed out of the nursing home if they had a doctor's appointment and that they were feeling like prisoners. And this woman who had rolled down her window and talked to me was, was crying. I mean, they, she was almost traumatized. And, I mean, to tell me that she felt like she was a prisoner in the nursing home and I just felt so bad for them. And, again, yes. I just can't imagine being in that situation and, and, you know, emotionally how that feels and how hard that is on you. And she had nowhere she could go, family member, I guess? Well, so she, she was in, I'm not sure if it was assisted living, so this particular nursing home has different levels. And so this woman was driving a car. She was with a man that I, I don't think he would have been able to drive. And then this woman wanted to see our pastor. And so she got out of the car and she had a cane and she was limping. And I was so grateful that she could talk to our pastor. And I'm, I'm hoping he was able to help help her. Uh, he definitely, you know, met with her and gave her communion and comforted her. But it was, you know, at the time it was really eye-opening that, you know, I knew those things were happening. We heard about it in the news. But I didn't have any loved ones who were actually, you know, in that position or in that setting where that was happening. So it was was kind of eye-opening in a sad way. Well, and and that is very sad. Um, One of the things as you talk about that is eye-opening to me is, why are the churches not speaking up against euthanasia? Where is there a larger congregation of elderly people than in the churches? And I'm making a difference to me which denomination that it is. But the, to me, the pastor, the priest, the rabbi, you know, any of them in that position, need to be warning their congregation, do not trust hospice facilities if you suspect something question it make sure that your loved ones are being protected they why are they not speaking up against this because they do know it 
they do know this is going on, but they're not willing to speak up in the congregation to warn their people that love God and have been going to that church for years and years to protect them from what is happening when they know it's happening. Why aren't they speaking up? Marsha, I think we have that same problem when it comes to abortion, and I know that when it comes to abortion, we do have some churches involved, but I wish more and more churches were involved and out on the sidewalk and, as you said, having pastors speak from the pulpit. I think it would be so powerful whether you're talking about abortion or euthanasia, and it's just it's so needed, and people need to hear that. They do. And and everybody needs to be sharing it with their next door neighbor, um, you know, with with their loved ones. I obviously I carry cards with me, and I ordered a lot of y'all's brochures, <laughs> um, the pamphlets that you're talking about, and I give those out to people. And if I see someone, you know, I've gone up to people before in a store and a guy's pushing, you know, his dad in a wheelchair and I've gone up and started talking to them and, you know, and and I polite about it, but, you know, I just want to warn them that there is an issue. I talked to my dad's podiatrist um, a couple of weeks ago and he believes both of his parents were euthanized. And he says, yes, I believe it's happening. I believe both of my parents were. So... And even doctors, it, you know, the people who have had it happen don't need to feel like, you know, oh, I, you know, I didn't know this and, you know, I feel so bad because I was ignorant and I didn't know it. Doctors don't even know that it's going on. And they've got a medical background. We don't have medical backgrounds, most of us. And we had no clue what was going on until it was too late. And by the time your loved one is put into that coma, that stupor type, and their their body organs are starting to shut down, the chances of even giving them Narcon to reverse that, it's already done so much damage to their body, to their heart, to their kidneys, to their liver, to their body, you know, atrophying, laying in bed, that I don't know that we could turn them around. I'd like to think that if I knew what I know now, I would have saved my mother. I, I do believe that I would have. Had I known what I know now, I would have saved my mother. But I was ignorant. I didn't know, and it cost her her life. I won't let my dad, will be 93 next month, and I won't let that happen to him. He will die a natural death. So, uh, you know. That's neat, and I echo your sentiments. Um, if I could re- have press redo with my mom, I would certainly do things completely different. And we, I think we all would. We all would. So we have um, just a few minutes left. If if you want to close out, is there anything else that you would like to um, warn our listeners about or you know, I, I would probably just say in closing that um, I'm relatively new at HALO. I started in January of this year. But what I have found is HALO is truly making a difference. And, again, just being a patient advocate myself, I've been in so many situations where I know that I've played at least a little part in saving someone's life. And so um, that has just been so rewarding. And, again, we would love to have you all as patient volunteer, patient advocates for HALO. 
but in any event, we would we have the resources and the materials on our website that you can equip yourself to be strong patient advocates for your loved ones. And again, halovoice.org, we have a lot of different uh, resources. And Marsha, I want to thank you for having me on the show tonight. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate you coming on and sharing your information and, you know, for Halo being there and doing what all of you are doing and advocating for the elderly. And I'd like to encourage the listeners to go out there, look at the resources, check out other websites, and, you know, the Murder by Hospice group, if you're interested in finding a support group that is active and supports each other, is a safe place to go. Halo is a safe place to go. And you can tell your stories over and over. Do not let people convince you that you didn't see what you saw because you did. You can't unsee it. Most people have nightmares over it. You're not guilty. Do not blame yourself. And if you need to talk to me, I'm always available to send me an email, Marsha Joyner, 2018 at gmail.com. And I'm happy to listen to people, too, and let you know that you saw what you saw. You're not guilty. So for everybody listening in tonight, thank you for listening to us. And Marty, as always, thank you for hosting our programs and letting us come live and talk real. Good night, and thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and Halo information. Again, you want to give people that number real quick? Sure. The number for Halo is 888-221-HALO. Or, as as Marcia said, if you're a numbers person, the number would be 888-221-4256. And the helpline is extension 0. Or if you'd like to speak with me, my extension is extension 1. Excellent. Okay. All right. Thank you, and good night to everyone. We'll see you in a couple of weeks with another story. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Okay.